0: We're coming here today from the Alamo in New Kensington, Pennsylvania, and welcoming all listeners from all over the place, and I'm honored to be working today with Mark the Perfect Man Gillis and with Emery the Polyonomous Persinger, who are both applying their multifaceted technical skills in the troll booth. And I'm grateful to be co-laboring with those men in Christ Jesus. We are now in increment 113, and this is the fourth message that I'm entitling Yesun, Jesus, the Son of God. Hebrews 4.14 is our passage. And before we get to that, I want to quote a few verses. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, although he was rich. For your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Each person should decide in his own heart what to give and shouldn't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. It is God who produces in you the desires and actions that please him, and I'm convinced that God who began this good work in you will carry it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, I did that for our local assembly mostly because I know you miss the offering verses that we read every Sunday morning. But I also read those because I mainly wanted to say to you all, wherever you are, that my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. And Father, we're grateful that we have yet another opportunity In a nation that still has a modicum of freedom. That we can look into the perfect law of freedom, which is your word. And that we can be transformed by seeing in your word, as in a mirror, the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an unspeakable privilege it is, Father, that we can be transformed little by little, step by step into the image of your Son and that we can bear that image in this life and even in this evil age as epistles written, not with ink but by the Spirit of God, epistles that may be known and read by all men. We thank you in Jesus' name, for this privilege, amen. Hebrews 4.14, speaking of privilege, Therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. Now, there's a verb here that I want to look at right off the bat. It's di E L E L U T H O T A long verb, and it's the perfect active participle form of the lexical verb DIERCOMAI D I E R C H O M A I DIERCOMAI. And the verb means to pass through. This little prefix dia, that's attached to it, means passage through something. The perfect active participial form of the lemma or the lexical verb diērkomai, along with the plural tūs urēnus, which means the heavens plural, should be translated has passed through the heavens. Now some translations say he passed into the heavens, but Jesus hasn't just passed into the heavens. He has passed through the heavens. The perfect tense specifies a completed action with ongoing results. The completed action is his passage through the heavens to the greatest extremity and the highest height of heaven. Take a diagram of the tabernacle and the outer tent, the holy place, and the holiest place of all, which some people relate to the first, second, and third heaven. Paul spoke about being caught up into the third heaven, into paradise, where he heard unspeakable utterances. Take that tabernacle and stand it on end and the Holy of Holies would be at the uppermost part and that's where Jesus is in the heavenly Holy of Holies. So the perfect tense again specifies a completed action with ongoing results. The ongoing results is that he is at the right hand of the Father, our great archpriest. He's making intercession for us. He's holding up the universe, and holding it together in a systemic cohesion by his power. He's guiding all of history to a redemptive, universal, and soteriological conclusion. He's our great archpriest. Again, the perfect tense specifies a completed action with ongoing results. The completed action is his passage through the heavens, to the greatest extremity and highest height of heaven, where he now sits enthroned, crowned with glory and honor at the right side of the eternal majesty, which is his Father. His journey through the heavens is analogous to the passage of the archpriest of the Levitical or the Aaronic order through the precincts of the earthly tabernacle in the desert or in the temple in Jerusalem, refurbished under King Herod. The migration of Jesus through the heavens explains how Paul can refer to Jesus' ascension as a going up far above all the heavens. Huperano ton Uranon. You'll see these Greek phrases in print when we get the notes to you. The apostle then says, in Ephesians four ten, in order that he may fill up all things. And to fill up all things means the whole universe, consisting of the heavens and the earth. The implications of Jesus' ascension are indeed universal. Paul makes very explicit these universal implications both in Ephesians and in Colossians, both of which I believe Paul wrote or dictated. The Hebrews author's goal is not mainly to do this, that is, not mainly to show the universal soteriological impact of his ascension, though the universal soteriological implications of Jesus' exaltation are very much present in his homily, which we call Hebrews. And those are the implications that should be apprehended by 21st century readers. After all, our historical situation is not the same as the addressee's situation, the initial recipients of this epistle. However, the great arch priesthood of Jesus and the confession of Jesus as the Son of God are still vitally relevant to us and in our time. One can imagine and we should employ or deploy our imagination in the study of the Word of God. One can imagine the shaming, even what we would call today the trolling, the doxing, the canceling, that was being done to Christians by the culture of the time of the original recipients of this homily they were being taunted by the roman culture with its caesarian cult which had its high priest the worship of caesar was a cult it had its own high priest in revelation 13:11 john associates that high priest of the caesarian cult with another beast he calls him another beast in Revelation 13:11, These Christians were also no doubt being shamed by the Jewish subculture, who no doubt humiliated them for being without the privilege of having a high priest in Jerusalem who passes through the precincts of the earthly man-made tabernacle once a year on Yom Kippur. Imagine the astonishment of these initial readers when they were told or indeed reminded and taught more fully, not only that they indeed had a great archpriest in Jesus, the Son of God, but that their great archpriest has passed through the heavens, a little bit better than passing through the precincts of the temple in Jerusalem. That's because what he accomplished is infinitely greater and who he is is infinitely greater. Now this must have provided a tremendous burst of incentive for them to hold fast their confession of Jesus as the Son of God because at the time they were tempted to waver in holding that confession. That confession is a boast according to another passage in Hebrews. It's basic reality, as another passage teaches, and we'll be noting that. And in Hebrews 10.23, they are to hold this confession without wavering, and that means until the end, the end of their lives. Recently, our church, in our church, we lost a dear friend, Jim Eichner, and of him I can say he held fast the confession until the end. A quiet man, a quiet professional, a profoundly deep student of the word of God, a gracious and wonderful person, Jim Eichner, who walked these halls of this Alamo. And certainly, our sympathy and this this message that I'm teaching today is a little ahead. We're a little ahead, so this might seem a tardy expression of love. but our love and affection is certainly along with our condolence expressed to Dane his wife and to Pam, his daughter, who also are both avid students of the word of God and to the rest of the family. It's an amazing thing when one of us crosses into the heavens and makes the same trek as our great archpriest after having finished the course here in this evil age, after having fought the good fight and after having kept the faith as our quiet, professional brother did so very well. So I salute you from the heart, Jim, and we'll see you soon. Imagine again the astonishment of these readers. Not only do you have a a great archpriest but he's Jesus, the Son of God, and he's passed through the heavens, and he did it for you. He's up there at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Attridge, Harold Attridge, and I mentioned he's one of the three main commentators that I'm consulting, and there are others, but on pages 139 and 140, Harold Atridge says this, and I said it, I'm quoting him because he's saying it in a compact way so that I don't have to, I'm kind of lazy, I don't have to look up all these verses. But he said, The title of son, capital S O N, is mentioned in connection with the confession. Now, this again is, I'll put this up here because it is an important Greek word, an articular word, simply means it has an article, taste the article. It's kind of like the in English. And then homologia. The Greek doesn't have an H per se, so there's a hard breathing. It's a co- sort of a comma going this way, an upside down comma going that way. The soft breathing would read this way, so it would be homologia. But because it's a hard breathing going this way, it's homologias. H-O-M-O-L-O-G-I-A-S accent here, tes homologias, that's the confession. The confession reduced down to its singular brevity is Jesus is the Son of God. So again, Atridge wrote this, the title of Son is mentioned in connection with the confession, tes homologias, and in his note, number 34, his footnote, refers to or confers with Hebrews three one, and then he says in the footnote and I'm putting this in brackets the collocation of Jesus and Son of God is found several times in explicitly confessional formulas and then he confers with Acts 9.20 1 John 4.15 and five five and also Romans one four, First Thessalonians one ten, and first John one seven. Now I'll take a break here. What he means is these are all written examples of Jesus the Son of God in what would be a confessional formula, that which would be stated or openly confessed or acknowledged in the presence of many witnesses, just like Jesus witnessed his own messiahship and sonship in front of Caiaphas, who then went ballistic. And just as Timothy also made a confession, and did it very well, said Paul, before many witnesses in 1 Timothy 6.14. And so this The acknowledgement of Jesus as the Son of God was probably a formulaic thing. It's part of a creed. Now you see creeds everywhere on people's lawns today. We believe this, 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 and this. I would see those creeds and I would certainly go back to the creed of what I believe and compare those. In fact, I think I'm going to do that someday as a message. Take the creeds that are on people's lawns today and compare it to a biblical creed. And I think that would be fun, and it would also be controversial and result in being doxed, trolled, canceled, and possibly killed in our day and age. Just kind of joking about the last part, but not really. So let's do this again. Attridge, page 139 and 140, his commentary on Hebrews. The title, Son, is mentioned in connection with the Confession of Jesus as Son of God, to which the addressees are urged to hold fast. Remember the tattoo of the man on his four fingers of both hands in the movie Master and Commander. And you get the close-up, and it says, Hold fast. That's really the hortatory theme of Hebrews. To which addressees are are urged to hold fast, and that, of course, is the Greek word kratomen, k-r-a-t-o-m-e-n, kratomen, kratomen, from the Greek verb krateo. As they uh, had earlier been urged to hold on to their boldness, hopeful boast, and basic reality. In fact, if you're i I'm breaking again here from the quote, but if you're a mature believer, your basic reality is Jesus, the Son of God. Your basic reality is your new self in him. You have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And... That's as a mature believer. Then he finally says, the maintenance of the confession probably involved preservation of a commitment made in a liturgical context, but can't be limited to that. So what he's saying is that perhaps at a certain point in a service, when they're assembled together, there was a formal time in which individuals could make the acknowledgement before their brothers and before their sisters and their families and the congregation. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Some commentators, and I'll be honest with you, I'm almost bothered by the sacramental kind of emphasis that a lot of commentators have. They put so much emphasis on baptism and the Eucharist. Now, I'm not downplaying these things at all. But I don't think that the word of God is as sacramentally oriented as a lot of writers make it out to be. I could change, as Dennis Miller said at the end of his rants, I could be wrong. But some commentators suggest that the so-called liturgical context in which the hebrews had initially made this confession in front of witnesses was on the occasion of their baptism now i hope you'll listen sort of carefully to this cuz i had to kind of ferret this part out in the scriptures and it's to me it's fascinating and that means it's more than interesting Now, this may well have been the case. You get baptized, you come up, and you say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that perhaps that liturgical, it looks like this, in case you're wondering, liturgical. Lots of churches have what they call the liturgy. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Liturgical setting here could well have been on the occasion of their water baptism. I'm not disputing that, not really. But this if this had been the case the PT doesn't really make it very clear that that was the case. He doesn't say when you said Jesus is the son of God at your baptism. The reference that they usually use in is in Hebrews 10:22 and Hebrews 10:19 to 23 is kind of a cognate to our own passage in Hebrews 4.14 where the high priesthood is related to drawing near. But they usually use the phrase our bodies washed in pure water in Hebrews 10.22. And they say that that is an allusion to water baptism or that it might be. But I think it's probably an allusion not so much to the ritual of water baptism but to the washing of priests before offering the burnt offering and it's therefore a kind of a cleansing of the priests before they enter into their ministry now to back this up or to illustrate this at least Consider Leviticus chapter 16, and if you're listening to this and aren't driving, you might want to look at this. And Luke, or rather, Leviticus 16, yeah, we are going to look at Luke too. Leviticus 16, chapter 16, verse 23 and 24. Listen carefully. And Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, that's the high priest, shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, And shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And notice verse 24. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, and put on his garments, and come forth and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make an atonement for himself and for the people. So his body was washed with pure water, Aaron's was, as the great high priest in the holy place, so that he could offer atonement. So it's more than interesting, and for more than one reason, that Jesus was baptized and began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. It says that explicitly in Luke 3.23. Jesus was 30 years old, he was baptized, then he entered into his ministry. So we have to at least think that maybe there's a parallel here to the archpriest Aaron, washing with pure water and then offering atonement because he's a priest and Jesus baptism in water and then his emergence up from the water to enter into his ministry it says he entered into his ministry at 30 years of age hold on to that thought 30 years of age Luke 3:23 it is more than interesting that Jesus was 30 years of age when he entered into his ministry after his body was washed with water. Because, for example, Joseph, who is a type of Jesus, was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh. And when he passed through, see if you're listening. See, if you remember this word, dierkomai, pass through, same word for Jesus, passing through the heavens. There's no dot over the iota in Greek, so I forgive me for that. As in Hebrews 4.14, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh and then departed from Pharaoh and passed through all the land of Egypt. It is more than interesting that Jesus was 30 years old when he entered into his ministry after washing in water because David, his ancestor, was 30 years old when he began to reign as king. And it says that David reigned for 40 years until his death at age 70. 2 Samuel also known as 2 Reigns, 2nd Reigns, 5-4, you say, David only lived till he was 70. Wow, Moses lived till he was 120. Well, let me just say this about David. He lived pretty hard. You say Moses did too, yeah. But David lived hard, fought hard, and died at 70. And I won't go into all the controversies around his last days. So, in second Samuel five four he was thirty years old. he reigned for forty years. It is more than interesting, most of all, however, because the priests of the Levitical order were qualified to serve only at thirty years of age. Numbers four three says it. It says, men from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who is qualified to do work at the tent of meeting or in the tabernacle, to serve the tabernacle, you had to be 30 years old. So put that together with Jesus is 30 years old, he submits to baptism and he does so to fulfill all righteousness. He says to John the Baptizer, the immerser, the dunker, John the dunker. That's closer to what he's called. What he was called back then by both friends and enemies than Baptist or Baptizer. John the dunker. Do it, John. You should be baptizing me, John says. Jesus said, do it, John. Baptize me in order to fulfill all righteousness. You see, we got to do this because I'm 30 years old. I need the bathing of the water to enter into my ministry, which is the ministry of a priest. Not a priest after the order of Aaron, however. Because Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levi, but of the tribe of Judah, which is a royal tribe. Hint, hint at later things. Now, Jesus' ministry was evidently priestly that he entered, beginning when he was 30 years old. And after his body was washed with water. So there's long been a debate, and I've gone back and forth in my mind for 40 years about this myself, about just when Jesus became a great archpriest. When did he become a priest? When did he enter into the priesthood was it after his death when he ascended to heaven when he sat down when he presented himself to the father was it when he died on the cross when, was it when he rose from the dead was it when when was it well Luke 20, 3.23 should definitely figure in the argument for like Aaron Jesus flesh was washed with water before he came forth to make atonement didn't he Now the beautiful thing about the comparison and contrast of Jesus with the Old Testament priest and of Jesus with Aaron, for example, is that it is a comparison that employs the laws of similarity and dissimilarity. Just like Adam and Christ, there were similarities, there's dissimilarities. There were similarities in that Jesus was washed with water and then offered atonement. There was a great dissimilarity in that Jesus did not offer an atonement later on on the cross for himself and for the people. He knew no sin, so he didn't offer it for himself. Neither did he offer atonement or a burnt offering of himself for only the people of Israel, but for the whole world. And he became the propitiation expiation for the sins of the whole world get the universality here so in any case like Aaron Jesus flesh was washed with water before he came forth to make atonement though in Jesus case it was not for himself nor even exclusively for the people of Israel but for all of humankind, including Israel, for all of time. In any case, the reference to our bodies washed with pure water in Hebrews 10.22b shouldn't just be automatically assumed to be a reference to baptism, water baptism, the ritual. Especially given the priestly context of that passage and of all of Hebrews. And there's also a reference to our qualification, our qualification to be priests and to approach the throne of grace. So do we need water baptism to be qualified to be priests? You can say that if you want to, but I think rather what's being spoken of here is that we are qualified to be priests having been washed and sanctified by the water of the Word in Ephesians 5.26, that being the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12 and 6.5, so that the washing of our bodies with pure water is merely a metaphorical analogy to our preparation and readiness and qualification to be priests and therefore to have the right and the privilege and even the duty to approach the throne of grace for ourselves and for others. So there really, there's no honor greater than the honor of association with Jesus, God's Son. There simply is no greater honor than that. But on the flip side, there is no greater shame than bringing shame upon him by retracting our confession of him, either by words or by actions. Now, if we keep on plugging, and if we don't drift away from what we've been hearing in God's word, we become companions of Christ by that is meant that we enter a graced participation a participation that would be impossible without grace in his faithfulness as a household over which Jesus as the faithful son in Hebrews 3 6 is also our great arch priest our house and we as a household have over us Jesus the faithful son in Hebrews three six, of whom we can be companions in Hebrews 3.14. And he's also a great archpriest over the household of God, which house we are in Hebrews 10.21. To participate in Jesus' faithfulness, is to have the honor to be in a community of fidelity, a community of divine and human faithfulness. The readers, the initial readers of Hebrews, had believed that Jesus is the Son of God, and they had acknowledged it. Whether in a liturgical context or not is not the real issue. They had made that acknowledgement. They could have made it in their family, at family dinner. They could have made it among friends. They could have made it on the job. They could have made it in a liturgical context. That's not really the issue. The issue is they had made an outward confession that matched their inward belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, to shift into another gear here. We came to Hebrews. I'm speaking to those who have been with me for several years now. And this is what colors our color commentary of Hebrews. We came to Hebrews via John's Gospel. I've said before, we came via Better Call Paul, we came through Romans, we came through Revelation. We also came through John's Gospel. I was surprised to find that we went through the whole study of the 4th G while here in the Alamo, being here now for 11 years. So we came to Hebrews via John's Gospel first. The whole purpose of the writing of the 4th Gospel by an author known as the disciple whom Jesus loved was stated in John 20.31. Like Romans has its peak and pinnacle verse, Romans 11.32, that God shows mercy to all. John has its peak and pinnacle verse in John twelve twenty thirty-one, stating the purpose for the writing of of that gospel. And that gospel was, in John's own view, or the beloved disciple's own view, a record of signs wrought by Jesus Christ the greatest of which was the resurrection appearances. He said, these signs, referring to signs or Simea, have been recorded in order that you, the reader, would be believing. Now, I didn't get this the first time through, John. I'm getting it in retrospect. The word would be believing is the subjunctive present active of the verb pistuo p i s t e u o pistuo p i s t e u o the subjunctive present active means that so that you would be believing that your lives would be characterized by faith that you would your lives would be characterized by believing that it's a hoti clause h o t i that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So let's back up slightly. John twenty thirty one. these signs have been recorded in order that you, the reader, would be believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that in turn you would have life in his name. You would be having life in his name. Now, this word pistuo, the believing, agrees with Romans. We also came to Hebrews through Romans. Now, we're going to be taking up some of these themes that I'm introducing now in increment 113. We'll be taking them up again in 114, hopefully, unless other things intervene in between. This John 20.31 agrees... With Romans 15.13, which Paul speaks of the believing, that you may have joy and peace in the believing, in the ongoing act of the believing, that you would have joy and peace. And what is joy and peace? Those are two of the three elements of the kingdom of God. And the experience of the kingdom of God in Romans 14, 17. For it says, the kingdom of God is, not going to be, but is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's back up again. John 20, 31. These signs have been recorded in order that you, the reader, would be believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that in turn you would be having life or have life in his name. The life that he's speaking of is the life of the coming age now in the present evil age in some discernible degree and in some meaningful measure. So we came to Hebrews through Romans also. Romans 15, 13, the present active infinitive of pistuo should be translated as a kind of verbal noun, the believing. It is in the believing that you experience joy and peace. As in John, life in the ongoing believing that Jesus is the Son of God. You have joy and peace in the believing, according to Romans 15 13, which is in the Holy Spirit. And in John, you have believing, you have life, the life of the coming age, as your experience, even now. So, believing is significant not as the means of human justification, not as a human means of justification but as the means of experiencing the kingdom of God now and experiencing joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where we're going to take up next time, but I want to just give a couple more thoughts. Not obeying. The Son of God, John 336 in John 3, in John, John equates believing and obeying, same with Paul in Romans one five, The obedience of faith, the obedience that is faith, faith and obedience. The Hebrews author equates believing with faith in some regards, and also equates unbelief with not obe- with, with disobedience. So in John 3.36, for example, not obeying the Son of God leaves one in the state of perishing, as John 3.16 intimates, and as 1 Corinthians 1.13 also speaks of in Paul. Or more specifically, John 3.36 says that those who did not obey the Son, which means believe in him, Remained in a condition where the wrath of God remained on that person. What does that mean? We'll explore that next time. Both of these expressions indicate that such a person is stuck in the world. and i mean by the world i mean the world the cosmos which is slated for destruction as opposed to future world which is a world forever and ever amen another way of saying that they remain under the wrath of god is that they remain sons of disobedience sons of disobedience Ephesians 2 2. And children of wrath. Ephesians 2 3. Under the influence of the prince ruler of airborne unclean spirits. Ephesians 2 2. Still another way to describe the condition of remaining under the wrath of God is to say that those who disobey the Son, John 3.36, and listen carefully to this because we're going to take up on the next increment with this. Those who disobey the Son, as opposed to obeying Him in Hebrews 5.9, put John 3.36, disobey the Son, remain under wrath, put Hebrews 5.9, obey the Son, and have soteria, or the salvation that's universal, personally, now. Once again, still another way to describe the condition of remaining under the wrath of God is to say that those who disobey the Son, John 3.36, as opposed to obeying Him, are still slated for the destruction of their false selves. Now here's the controversial point, and we're going to take up and explain a little bit next time as we continue along this line in increment 114. Neither John, also known as the beloved disciple, not the Apostle John, John Zebedee, he's not John Zebedee, in my view, and in my opinion. He is the beloved disciple, not one of the twelve, but someone closer even than the twelve to Jesus. Neither the beloved disciple, John, in his gospel, nor Paul, in all of his epistles, ever spoke of a place called hell. Both of them spoke of perishing... John 3.16, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for example. And both spoke of the wrath of God. But neither man spoke of perishing or of wrath in terms of a hell of eternal or everlasting conscious torment. Now here I've kind of come to a place of agreement with my brother-in-grace, brother-in-law, but brother-in-grace, Phil Henry, who's teaching on this subject and doing a wonderful job in his new Say What series. So I recommend that too. But nowhere, and he's dealing with this in a much more thorough way than I am today, both of these men, John and Paul, spoke of perishing. They both spoke of the wrath of God, but neither man ever spoke of perishing or the wrath of God in terms of a hell of eternal or everlasting torment. I know what you're thinking if you're a hellist or if you want to brag that you're a hell guy. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, aren't you? Well, we're going to take that up as we continue. And believe it or not, we are continuing under an exegesis of Hebrews 4:14 as we do this because again our commentary is different and distinct from all others because we came to Hebrews via John and via Paul so we thank you father for this opportunity to look into the variegated wisdom that we find in the scriptures it's extraordinary as we apply our imagination and our faith and our concentration to your word. The results are magnificent. The results are lasting. The results are highly recommended. So we thank you, Father, for this privilege, and may you teach beyond what a pastor can teach. May your Holy Spirit of grace teach these things to us in a way that makes us magnificent epistles of Christ, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God to be known and read by all men. We ask it, and all women too, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.